You're listening to the City World Radio Network. High-definition digital radio broadcasting from the city to the world. www.cityworldradio.com When they set him free again The road goes on forever And the party never ends Sonny's playing eight ball At the joint where Sherry works Some drunken out of towner Put his hand up Sherry's skirt Sonny took his boom cue Laid the drunk out on the floor Stuffed a dollar in her tip jar Walked out of the door She's running right behind me Reaching for his hand The road goes on forever And the party never ends They jumped into his pickup Sonny jammed her down in gear Sonny looked at Sherry Said let's get on out of here The stars were high above them The moon was in the east The sun was setting on them When they reached Miami Beach They got a motel by the water And a port of Bombay gin The road goes on forever And the party never ends They soon ran out of money But Sonny knew a man Who knew some Cuban refugees Who dealt in contraband Sonny met the Cuban In a house just off the route With a briefcase full of money And a pistol in his boot Cards were on the table when the law came busting in The road goes on forever and the party never ends The Cubans grabbed the goodies, Sonny grabbed the jack He broke the bathroom window and climbed on out the back Sherry drove the pickup through the alley on the side Where the lawman tackled Sonny and was reading him his rights She stepped out in the alley with a single shot for ten. The road goes on forever and the party never ends. They left the law band dying and they made their getaway. Got back to the motel just before the break of day. Sonny gave her all the money and he blew a little kiss. If they ask you how this happened, say I forced you into this. She watched him as tail lights disappeared around the bend. The road goes on forever and the party never ends. There's a main street after midnight, just like it was before. 
21 months later at the local grocery store Sherry buys a paper and a cold six-pack of beer The headlines read that Sonny is going to the chair She pulls back on the main street in her new Mercedes-Benz The road goes on forever and the party never ends Good evening, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. It's a very exciting night tonight. Uh, I have an amazing co-host, an amazing guest, and an amazing producer. Very, very excited to introduce that my guest tonight is Michael Corda, the former editor-in-chief of Simon & Schuster, noted author of many, many, many historical books about historical characters or, or people, but most importantly, his most recent, Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk defeat into victory. Now, before I go into a little bit more about Michael, and I apologize that I'm going to talk about Morph Mom for I promise you only a second or two so we can get into the more important stuff tonight. Just for those of you who are joining us tonight for the first time, my name is Kathleen Smith. Um, I started Morph Mom about five years ago. I'd been a prosecutor, had kids, tried to go back. It didn't work out so well. And I thought, Rather than reinvent the wheel, I was going to go out and interview women who had done whatever it is they're doing, who would pay it forward, share their story, and help others looking to do the same. So the first year was a website, and it's morphmom.com, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, if you want to go on there and find out about the stories we have. Um, The following year, we started to write in the Huffington Post, so I have all the articles in my column deal with um, the amazing stories that are out there. We have this radio show, which is so much fun. Uh, We have classes, and we have cocktail parties around the country, and we have another conference coming up on October 23rd in New York City, and we like to call it the non-conference, because hopefully all are welcome. We include tons of topics, tons of women, and it's just a feeling of connection. And by the way, men are welcome as well. (laughs) So, Michael, you're welcome as well. (laughs) Well, thank you. All are included. No one is ever excluded from a Morphum event. But anyway, so for those of you listening, I'm sure you're now ready to hear from Michael Corda and not from me and my co-host tonight, Kathy. Um, again, as I said, it's a thrill, it's an honor, it's a privilege to have Michael Corda on tonight. And again, as I mentioned, he was the editor-in-chief at Simon & Schuster, author of many, many books, but most recently, Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, Defeat into Victory. And many of you, I'm sure, have seen the movie Dunkirk recently, so you're familiar with the story. And... Uh, Michael's book takes us to such a deeper level. And the movie was amazing, but trust me, Michael's story takes us to such a deeper level. It comes at it from two perspectives, and Michael's going to tell us about this. One is sort of the historical perspective, how Chamberlain was more of the appeasement side, and Churchill came in, and how that sort of turned the world, and when Dunkirk happened, and the historical figures that were involved with that, and miscalculations. And Michael, as a six-year-old boy in London, and experiencing it through the eyes of a child. So, Michael, without further ado, thank you for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me, Kathy. It is an absolute honor, as I said. That's nice of you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was my Siri that just went off, so I apologize. Um, so, Michael, before we get into this, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I was six years old when the war broke out. Um, yeah. That's, in fact, the point at which I start alone. Uh, And I share with you, Kathy, a huge admiration for the movie Dunkirk. I thought Christopher Nolan did a brilliant job. I think, in fact, it's the most um, interesting war film I've 
ever seen. And I also think that it's a radical break for war films. It's a new way of t- telling a story about war, which is completely compelling. I saw it up here in Red Hook. I'm in Dutchess County, um, which is a fairly small town, very small town. And I expected um, that nobody would be there at 3 in the afternoon, instead of which the theater was jam-packed, and I was lucky to get a seat. And at the end of the film, the entire audience stood up and applauded, and about half of them were in tears. Really? And I thought, this is so strange. This is an event from 77 years ago in English history, British history, I should say. And and America was not in the war, um, and yet it moved them. And I think that that's a common response to Dunkirk because I think people recognize that it was not only a critical event of the moment at which Hitler could have won the war and failed to for a variety of reasons, which I go into in the book, um, but it's also a moment at which ordinary people, in fact, changed history by getting in their boats, um, by getting in their yachts and in their fishing boats and everything else. I'm making this perilous journey uh, to the beach at Dunkirk to take the, take the army off and bring it home. And w- when I say that the youngest of the people who, who made that extraordinary journey was 14, and the oldest 78, and the <laughs> smallest boat was 14 foot 4 inches long with an outboard motor, um, it gives you some idea of how varied and small the eight or 900 uh, boats as he called them in England, the little ships, um, were that came to take their men off the beach. Um, so that, I think, is a story worth telling. And I think what was so fascinating, too, was how at first it wasn't even recognized as a victory. It was sort of uh, militarily possibly somewhat of a defeat at first that I thought was so interesting, even in the movie, when they said the people who count know what you did and that it turned into one of the most so victorious and so turned around, possibly, the the direction of the way World War II continued. Oh, I think it changed exactly the direction of the world. I, I mean, it was a defeat. It was a cataclysmic defeat. After all, France fell in less than three weeks, and the British Army, the Belgium fell, Holland fell, and the British Army was left stranded with nowhere to go but a beach facing the English Channel and the North Sea. I mean, imagine putting 380,000 men on a, on a narrow beach um, uh, and under bombardment from aircraft and from artillery, um, a, a cataclysmic defeat. But the, the Germans, as luckily for us all, made a critical mistake, halted their armor for two days to rest and refit it, um, a very controversial decision. Um, and as a result, the British were able to organize, a, an, but at the same time, a spontaneous rush of small boats to the beach to take the men off. Now, had that not happened, I think it's very likely that Churchill, who had just become prime minister, would would not have been able to prevent um, uh, the strong feeling among a lot of people in the Conservative Party and in the War Cabinet um, that Britain should seek out terms from the Germans for surrender. Um, and and to me, the most m- marvelous moment of the book is actually when Churchill rejects instinctively the whole notion of seeking out German terms for surrender, but knows he doesn't have the political strength to simply say no to it at the moment. And so he breaks a war cabinet meeting, the war cabinet consisted of nine people, and goes down to a meeting of the larger cabinet, which was a 
about under 30 people, but more than 20. And they're gathered in a tiny office um, off the big chamber of the House of Commons. And he gets up on a desk to speak to them. And at the end of this wonderful speech, um, he says, um, if this Long Island story of ours is to end, let it end when each of us lies choking on the floor in his own blood. And the entire audience applauds him, claps him on the back, and he realizes he has won over people. So he goes back to a later meeting of the war cabinet and turns, says he is turning down any notion of approaching the German staff, but the terms of surrender might be that, we, that England will fight on to the end and never surrender. Uh, to, to ask them is, as he put it, to walk upon the slippery slope. And to me, that's an absolutely wonderful scene. It's history being made. It's history as it was told by those who were present. And it's history that's very important because if the Germans had won the war um, under Hitler, the world, a nasty and brutal place, though it may be today, would be a lot nastier and more brutal. So at the time, Chamberlain had been their prior Churchill, and I get, and his philosophy was appeasement. If we just sort of sit back, we, we, we're self-contained, we're safe. And when Churchill came in with the opposite, you know, with the blood, toil, tears, and sweat, and we're going to go in, was it hard for him to turn the tide of the country, or were people supportive of Chamberlain at that time? How did how what was the I mean, feeling? It was very hard for Churchill to turn the tide, um, and 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 particularly to turn the tide in his own party. Um, uh, he was not popular among conservatives. Uh, for years, he had been wrong about a great many things: um, independence for India, the marriage of Edward the Eighth to Wallace Simpson. He supported unpopular causes and supported them as was always the case with Churchill. And I should point out here that although I was a child, I met Churchill often and went to school with his grandson, so I'm talking about somebody who's not unfamiliar to me. Um, but when he whenever, whenever he supported, he supported with tremendous energy, wit, um, sometimes very savage wit, humor, um, and, and, and he could be biting and sardonic. And so the vast majority of the conservative party did not trust him. He, he was a half, what they called a half-breed American, because Churchill's mother was an American, uh, Jenny Churchill. Um, and and uh, he was a wild adventurer. Uh, there was a general distrust of him. Uh, it, it was only because there was nobody else that he became prime minister on May 10th after the Germans attacked uh, France, Holland, and Belgium. Uh, but he had to, at first, win people over to his view. And then, gradually, uh, by the time of the Battle of Britain in June 1940, um, a month later, he had acquired more of the confidence of his party. But even so, until the end of June 1940, Neville Chamberlain received much greater applause in Parliament than Churchill did. Um, Churchill had not yet won the heart of his own party. He did, but it took some doing. And one of the things that I do in Alone is to try and tell that story. It is not only the story of how the war began and how it came to be that the British Army lay stranded on a beach um, in the last week of May 1940 and got home from there, but also how Churchill 
So I guess alone at that time, how alone he might have felt trying to change the tide of the country to, to follow him as opposed to the appeasement approach of Chamberlain and Britain alone could have stood alone, I guess, as an island. And then Dunkirk, <laughs> like these 300,000 guys were alone for so long. Yes. I mean, alone is a good time. It comes actually from a speech by Winston Churchill. He said um, just um, towards the end of the evacuation of the British Army from Dunkirk, he said, uh, uh, we will um, we will never surrender. Uh, we will fight on, if necessary, for years, if necessary, alone. Um, and Britain did fight on alone from, um, from May of 1940 until... June of 1941, when Hitler most unwisely attacked the Soviet Union, and December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese even more unwisely attacked the United States. So there is a long period where, where alone exactly describes the position of Great Britain. And, and I also use it Kathy, in a larger sense because there was a huge evacuation of children from London and from the cities in the south of England because people believed that the moment war began began, there would be immense bombing raids with poison gas and every possible horror, um, um, which did not, in fact, happen, but it was expected to do do so. And so 2,500,000 children were evacuated to places further north in England, and some of them by sea over to Canada, and I was among those children. So uh, aloneness, even though that's not a great suffering, I mean, um, uh, aloneness for me, is something that I also associate with, 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 with 1940 and the beginning of the war. Um, uh, if you're seven years old, uh, you don't want, you, you right. can't, you, you don't want to be cooped up with five or six hundred other children on a boat that takes 14 days to cross the Atlantic to, 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 to reach Canada um, and, and be taken in for a time by total strangers. Um, so, it, it, uh, it, it's both an personal level and a historical level that the title alone matches the stories of this book. When looking back to that time at six and seven, what do you remember, I guess, most vividly or distinctly or when they told you you were getting on that boat to Canada? Do you- well, I don't think... It- <laughs> Fortunately, I was—I think I was more intelligent as a child than I am as an adult. I mean, I understood what was happening, and my family uh, was sophisticated and drew me into the, um, uh, you know, they explained things to me. I understood what was happening. Um, and like a lot of children of that age, um, uh, below a certain level, I found war and the events of war more exciting than frightening. Now, you know, at a certain point, it's like the difference between empty and full. Events become so frightening that they are, in fact, scary. Um, but but for the most part, it was exciting. It was different. I mean, we're, we were all issued gas masks. We were all put on trains with a piece of cardboard around our neck on a string with our name on it. Um, and, and, you know, great events were taking place. And I must say that I had some sense of what those great events were, um, much more than, than I, I, I would have expected when I started to think about it uh, in retrospect. Uh, but it was, it, it was very strange. I mean, uh, we have forgotten because since the Second World War, since 1945, although the United States and to a lesser degree, Great Britain, have done a fair amount of fighting. We have never been in a war 
that we might lose on a major and and um, uh, and in the end um, totally destructive way. Uh, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the Second World War was an altogether different war. I mean, even putting to one side the fact that it cost somewhere between 50 and 55 million people their life, um, it, the defeat in the Second World War would have meant the imposition of a kind of tyranny and, and brutality that is unthinkable, and of which a perfect example, of course, is the Holocaust. But imagine the Holocaust expanded thousands of times over and transferred to countries all over the place. Um, that's what a German victory in 1940 or 1941 would have meant. Um, so, it, you know, the wars we have fought since then, you can... You could negotiate to an end, like the Korean War. You could lose, like the Vietnamese War, and life still goes on. Life would not still have gone on if we had lost the war against Hitler. It's such a ter- like it's such a terrifying concept when you say it that way. Just to, to even, I don't know if I can even imagine what it is. It's absolutely terrifying. And at the age of six or seven. I mean, do oh, you, I like, think it's very difficult to imagine. I mean, was, oddly enough. Um, it was less difficult to imagine in 1939 and 1940 than it is now, right. because you didn't have to be that sophisticated to to have a sense of just how awful Nazi tyranny was in Germany, let alone in the countries that they conquered and occupied. Um, so it, it, you knew what you were first. Churchill said, and I think it's very wise. I think I quote him in alone, but when when he was told um, after the end of the three weeks of fighting, um, uh, the Battle of France, that the French soldiers um, didn't know what they were fighting for anymore. He said rather crossly um, uh, that they will quickly find out once they have surrendered. Yeah. <laughs> and, of course, it's absolutely true. They did. We, uh, I, I try to be very fair, is perhaps the wrong word, but equitable to everybody involved in, in a loan. Um, and, and we forget that Two million five hundred thousand French soldiers were taken as prisoners of war when France surrendered in June of 1940, and sent to Eastern Germany and Poland to work for five years uh, on starvation rations with almost no medical care um, and no warm clothing, uh, and with huge amounts of men crippled or or sickened or dying during that period. Now. France had a population of 40 million. So I put it to you, we don't, we don't get what it would be like if something like 30% of our male population between the ages of 17 and 50 were sent away somewhere for five years on starvation rations, you know, to dig beetroots with their hands in the freezing cold. Um, uh, so we don't, we don't see, first of all, how terrible defeat was, um, or would have been had we been defeated. And secondly, we don't we don't respect the the terrible consequences that French politics and 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 the the poor strategic thinking of the French army was as a as a consequence of the French. Um, and and that's one of the things, one of many things that I try to bring alive in law. In alone is just um, how awful it was. I mean, there were three in 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 the first period um, after May tenth when the 
Germans attacked Belgium and, and, and Holland, um, uh, almost two million seven hundred thousand Belgians and 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 Dutch um, and French were on the road as refugees uh, with no food uh, in cars which ran out of gas with no water, no way of cooking, um, stranded on the road, bombed and machine gunned um, day and night. Uh, it's, it's unimaginable. And yet it happened in my lifetime, not in yours because you're younger than I am. Um, and I, I, I wanted to bring all that back to life. It, it, exactly for what you just said, though, how invaluable this is for those who didn't live it, who need to know about this, who need to know about just everything that your story tells is what we need to know about mankind and go back to that. For example, even just Dunkirk. And I think, I'm not sure if I'm correct. It was called Operation Dynamo when all the boats and the ferries, is that what it was called when they all left London to cross the channel? Operation Dynamo. Operation Dynamo was the Navy's last moment, a very successful attempt to, um, uh, to get every small boat in England including yachts and motorboats and the the um, uh, excursion boats on the Thames and the fire boats and fishing boats um, uh, out into the sea and south to Dunkirk, um, which is enormously successful, but it was improvised. It wasn't a long-term plan. The, the, Admiral Ramsey, in charge of Operation Dynamo, simply saw that the only way to do it was to get small boats onto the beach. And it is one thing that the English are in general pretty good at its seamanship being an island uh, and that turned out to be fortunate um, but but it's an extraordinary story I, I, I find it myself a very moving story I mean I, I have to say that when I saw Dunkirk um, and the audience was in tears I was in tears too I mean different for me because I'm English and because I was alive when it happened but nevertheless it's a it's a very moving moment of history I, I have um Two sons. So I have a daughter who's 21, I have a son who's 18, and I have a son who's 15. And they all went to see the movie. And it was so interesting to talk to them afterwards about it, about the story and what it was like. And I I think most importantly, which is so important about your book, is that they need to hear these stories. They need to know what it's like. They need to know that not everything is great all the time. And, And you have to be... I think what it shows is bravery at the time when it's most important and most necessary and who you are. Who are you going to be that? Who are you when something pushes you to the wall? And what decision are you going to make? And I think that's what's so miraculous about this story. Is that yes, all I those... Think I think you're absolutely right, Kathy. And I think that, that, that Churchill's words were, um, in fact, one of the, the energizing factors in in, 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 in in what happened, that that somehow he found the words to express what people were feeling um, and to make them feel good about what was happening to themselves and what they were about to do and what they were about to undergo. And that's a tremendous thing. Um, he, I mean, he recognized, I think he said at some point, um, uh, uh, they, was, they were the lion, I was merely the roar. Uh, and, and it, but uh, that does a little credit to the fact that he was also a, a a consular politician and a, and, and, a, um, uh, and a war leader. But he, in one sense, he was right. Words do matter. Um, and it's one of the things that I try and do in Alone. Just as the, the movie Dunkirk shows you what that was like from, through the eyes of four or five people who were involved. In Alone, I try and wherever possible 
go to people's diaries and letters and memoirs and seek out the people who were actually there and recorded the time what was happening. So you see it through their eyes. And through your eyes. That's what I think is most fascinating. Yes. Like Through a six-year or seven-year-old child's eyes, you see what it was like. Yeah, I I I I I, I think that's, that 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 acts as a it acts as a kind of um, I was going to say force, but that's probably the wrong word. But it acts as a kind of catalyst that that binds all the different stories together um, mm-hmm. and holds them together. Which is I, I'm very much anxious to write history, which reads like a novel, but is based on fact. And I think if alone does that, and and I think in it does to some. I can't be the judge myself, but I think it does. Then that's the way history should be written, and that's what our kids, my kids especially, should be reading. That yeah, that's what they need to learn. That's how they're, they're going to know what it was like. That's why I'm so appreciative. Not reading that they're not being taught anything about it. Right, <laughs> right. And nothing is being explained to them. Right, it's that's true. I think a great tragedy and very dangerous. But I think what is so important too about alone is like what we just said so this covers churchill chamberlain you know all the minor the major characters everybody in this and the germans the french the belgians i mean i try and i try and provide the whole picture and that and i think it's great and again i love the movie too and it's great that they see this but that's a cinematic amazing story but then you read alone and alone covers the different sides and the different strengths and the different mistakes and the miscalculations and what what, and that's what's so important not just for adults but i also think as i said and my kids are older but for them to see this as well and to experience that through your words is i don't know i I, it's i'm great i am grateful as a parent that it's there for myself (laughs) and for my kids to see this and read this oh i think it's i think it's an important thing i think it's such a pity that that we don't teach history better in our mm-hmm. schools, and 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 that we don't point out to people how important it is. Um, it's 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 the, the biggest weakness of our educational system, I think. Um, but in any case, so far as Dunkirk is concerned, yes, but wonderful as the movie is, what I'm trying to show also is the background of how it happened. Um, how it happened to various people, how the decisions were made, and in short, how 338,000 men got onto a beach at Dunkirk and had to be taken off in small boats. Right. And is it true, so while they were there, I guess there was some, I'm, I'm just curious, or was there some contention as to the the role the French soldiers played at that time? And I read that many were saying that they were holding off the Germans while trying to get people off of the beach, or trying to get them off of Dunkirk as the boats were coming in. So what was the position as far as the French were concerned with that? Well, to give the French credit, I don't think the British could have gotten 338,000 men out the beach had the French rear guard not fought off the Germans for several days. Um, and and all of the British um, were certainly bitterly involved in that. Um, I, you have to imagine that the French army in France at that time consisted of 3,500,000 men, and the British army consisted of about 350,000. So we were only a tenth the size of the French army. Uh, That we made it to the beach and got men off um, was a miracle and changed the course of the war in a very very radical way. But it it, it would not have happened uh, without many 
of the French, fighting hard to the very end to keep a perimeter on Dunkirk. And I, and I try in the book to give them credit for that, because on the whole, people have not given them any credit right. for that, and, and, and that's wrong. When you said you, when you wrote this book, how did you do the research for this? And, and were there letters? Were there, what did you do to, 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 to compile everything for it? My method, which is not one that I necessarily recommend to anybody else, <laughs> is to read an awful lot and mark off in the bibliography the things that sound to me as if they might lead to something interesting, and then to either look it up myself or get somebody else to look it up for me until I have a huge bunch of paper on my desk and start to go through it. And what interests me most is when I find, as in the case of Henri Falaise, who was a liaison officer to a British regiment who went through the entire period um, and finally got off the beach of Dunkirk together with the, the, the British regiment. Henri Lafayette was at one time a Hollywood director who married Constance Bennett and Gloria Swanson and kept a, a wonderful diary. He was clear-eyed, smart, intelligent, bilingual, um, sophisticated, and he kept a marvelous diary. And I thought to myself, well, you know, that's some, you have to get at that diary. Here's mm-hmm. somebody who was there, tells what happened every day, writes it down in his little notebook. That's what you need to find. Not what people have written about it, because that's secondhand, but what people wrote every night when they were actually there. And you just have to find those things out. It's like finding shelves on the beach. Were you able, I don't even know if this is possible, but when you were doing the research, maybe any of the, the men who would or women who'd gone out on their boats to go help the people in Dunkirk. Were there any letters or any anything left behind from those that had gone out on the boats to go help? Oh yes, there's quite a lot. Uh, I use it in the book, it alone, and there there, there is quite a lot. Um, people had a very sharp memory, and you know, the British very carefully gathered up all of this stuff uh, for the BBC in the late 1940s and early 1950s, before television was really a force. Um, and, and interviewed people on the radio and put away the, the raw material for those interviews. There's a lot of stuff there. I mean, more than one person could possibly digest. Um, but, uh, but it was very carefully gathered up. Was there one story, and I'm fascinated by the men and women who went out to help with the ferries and the boats, was there one or, or a few stories that really sort of, stuck with you or really moved you when you read them or you found out about them? Well, they all gripped me, but most of all, I liked the account of um, uh, a man called Lighthaller, who, strangely enough, was the second officer on the Titanic when she went down and was swept overboard and managed to assemble a raft and get people into it and keep them awake all through the night by making them sing rousing hymns and songs and paddle, um, and thereby saved, um, I think, 15 or 20 people um, from, from drowning when the Titanic went down. And he, at a fairly advanced age, um, took his little motor yacht with his teenage son and his teenage son's best friend, who was a sea scout, south to the beach um, in Dunkirk, and took about 230. 50 men off the beach oh in a tiny little motorboat and took them back to Dover. And Lighthaller uh, not only spoke about that for the BBC, but wrote about it uh, in diaries. And, and, and so, yeah, Lighthaller's 
story to me is amazing because I mean, imagine taking your own—I think it was a twenty-five-foot motorboat um, <laughs> from the Thames um, all the way across the Channel and, and down and, and the North Sea to Dunkirk under fire and being bombed and machine gun from the air with two teenagers to take men off the beach and bring them back. Um, that kind of stuff. That's that's a story which absolutely sticks in my mind. How long was that journey? How long was it? Would it have taken to go from London to cross to Dunkirk? How how long would that have taken? I would think that it would have been the best part of two days and two nights in a motorboat oh to get there, um, because you couldn't go directly across the channel. Partly because the channel was um, full of minefields, and partly because. Um, to go directly across the channel to Dunkirk, there are a couple of big shoals in the way, which at low tide um, would ground almost any boat. So you had to go on a zigzag pattern um, to, into the North Sea and then approach Dunkirk from the east, which is a journey of 75 miles. So if you count probably 50 miles from London to Deal or Dover, and then 70 by, 75 miles from Dover or Deal to Dunkirk, um, you're talking of about 100 to 120 miles for a small motorboat. That's, that, that's a two-day journey. Which they, in turn, had to return with this boat. Then you had to return. Um, and, um, uh, and But imagine, I don't know if you've ever crossed the channel in a boat, but if you ever have, you'd wonder how you could cross it in a 25-foot motorboat. Right. It's a little bumpy. <laughs> leave, leave the mines and the bombing and yeah. the machine gun into one side. <laughs> right. Rough water. So I have to ask you, the mines, they, they had, Germany had mines in the channel? No, no, no. Uh, the, the British had mined the channel. Oh. <laughs> we had our own minefields to prevent German ships getting through the channel. Um, but where's, where's naval? Uh, ships had on board the navigator with a chart who knew exactly the the position of every minefield. Um, the the civilian boatsmen and yachtsmen and fishermen who went south um, did not necessarily have that knowledge. They were each issued with a chart, but they were not experienced navigators. So there was every possibility. Uh, that they would be blown up by our own mines, in addition to which the Germans spread mines as rapidly and as fast as they could uh, into the channel once they realized what was going on. Um, it was a very dangerous place. And a lot of ships and boats were blown up by mines uh, and went down with all hands. Um, uh, I, I described that in alone. Um, I think um, um, a cruise ship, the Bonas Isle, went down with a crew of about 150 and 1,500 men on board and simply hit a mine and sank to the bottom with everybody on board lost. Um, it was a very bloody, difficult, and dangerous operation. And um, uh, But uh, fortunately, it succeeded. It, it, that's so terrifying with the mines. I didn't even know that part of it. Which is, I, I don't well, know. So... I want to go back to you at that time. So as a six-year-old, seven-year-old child, and I guess it was called, it was Operation Pied Piper, I think, right, was to, to get mm-hmm. the kids out of there. And some went to Canada, like you did. Some went to the countryside. Is that true? Is, like, is that how it worked? Yeah, I was I, I was evacuated to the North of England um, and spent some time on a farm. 
and then came home. Fortunately, a lot of people did not, um, uh, because my parents had enough clout and also money to get me home, um, and then was evacuated again to Canada. Um, um, I mean, nobody asked me whether I wanted to go to Canada or not, so that was not an issue. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I, I, I want to be careful about that because my experience, while it was unpleasant in many, I mean, who wants to be taken away from their home and shipped off somewhere to, <clears throat> in the hands of strangers? Um, but it was not uh, compared to what other people suffered during the Second World War. It was not a big deal. But uh, but it's also it's a dismaying thing for a child, and I I, I try to introduce into a load my sense of just how difficult that period of life was, um, right. and how, how uncertain it was. You never knew from one day to another that we, what was going to happen. How, how did it resolve itself? Well, it resolved itself by, by eventually making my way of all places to Los Angeles, where my father came over in 1940, late 1940, um, to make The Thief of Baghdad, which won him an Academy Award, and to finish um, The Jungle Book and that Hamilton woman, and then went back to England in 41, and I went back in 45. So, it, I mean, from my own personal point of view, it certainly is a story with a happy ending. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, for a child, it's difficult to be shoved onto a... Right. Absolutely, because you, you didn't know what the outcome was going to be. days across the Atlantic mm -hmm. to Canada. <laughs> and also, I don't suffer from seasickness. <laughs> uh, but uh, found that out the hard way. Or so children who were on board that ship, I think 599 of them threw up all the way across. Oh, no. <laughs> Did you have siblings that went as well? No, I, no, no, I was an only child. So you were alone uh, with all yeah, of these kids? Yeah. Um, not, not knowing when you'd ever see your parents again, not knowing where you were going, not knowing what the outcome this was going to be. I can remember... It as an endless series of people growing up. <laughs> anyway, that, it's amazing what we remember when we're kids. The worst thing that happened in 1940. I would remember uh, that as well, though. It's part, of, it's part of my story. Interesting. And then you went right from Canada to L.A. And then I ended up in L.A. for a time, and then back to New York. Then back to New York, um, where I went to school. And then in 1945, as soon as one could, I went back to to, to, to Britain. When did you decide? You wanted to go into editing, and like, how did that happen? So you, you were in LA, you were in New York, you went back to London. When did editing and publish, like, when did that become a part of what you wanted oh, to pursue? I was fully grown up. I went, I, I went back to England. I went to, to boarding school. I went. I served two years in the Royal Air Force, so then I went to Oxford. And when I graduated from Oxford, I went back to the United States. And um, after a brief period of reading scripts for CBS Television. Um, uh, I, I was offered a job at Simon & Schuster as an assistant editor um, and took it, uh, I must say, at a very low salary. Um, and the rest, uh, the, the rest uh, yeah, I stayed there 48 years. I could have stayed there 50, but I didn't see the, a reason to stay two years just to put a zero at the end of the right. number. Um, but it's a long time anyway. <laughs> so so you, you've accomplished a lot. What would you say is your accomplishment that you're most proud of? I'm not hearing you now. Oh. oh, I'm sorry. I was saying you've accomplished a lot. What is the accomplishment that you're most proud of? You, uh, you, you're, you've suddenly gone very faint. Oh, so, so, the so Kathy was saying, in, in all of your accomplishments, and there are so many, 
Is there one that you're most proud of? Yeah, uh, there, there are two, actually. Um, I, I'm very proud of having published, not only published Larry McMurtry for something like 35 years, but of publishing Lonesome Dove, which is my my favorite, the favorite piece of fiction of anything I've ever published. And I'm also very proud of having been David McCullough's editor for more decades than I want to say, uh, because his biography of Truman is, 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 for my money, the favorite nonfiction book I've ever published. So those, those are my two proudest moments in book publishing. Oh, so when, when you were, so you were at Simon & Schuster for 48 years, you said. Mm-hmm. And during that time, so you've published many novels along with many books. Were you writing at the same time? I didn't start writing until probably uh, 58, maybe 15 years into my career, uh, when I just suddenly thought, well, you know, I could do this too, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 and started to try it. And I found I liked doing it. But it never occurred to me that, that being a writer was going to be in any way a profession that would overtake or, or undercut my, my, my role as an editor uh, or my job as an editor-in-chief. And then gradually writing became more and more important to me, and particularly as I got involved in writing things that interested me personally, like the biography of Eisenhower, uh, my book about the Battle of Britain, and my book about the road to Dunkirk alone, which is just being published. I mean, those are all things that interested me, um, and still do. I hope to write more. What, 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 what other topic or what other area would you be interested in um, writing about, sharing with, with the public? Um, you might have trouble hearing Oh, so, so Kathy was saying, I'm sorry, is there another topic you're interested in? What's, what's next, sort of? Um, believe it or not, um, it's going to be a book of cat cartoons. Really? Cat, called, yeah, called Catnip, a love story being published on Valentine's Day next year. Uh, because my, my wife Margaret died in April, and during uh, her treatment for brain cancer, I did a cat, she was a cat lover, I did a cat cartoon for her every day and sent it to her by, from my phone to her phone. And by accident, oh, I sent beautiful. one of them um, to my editor at Liverite, Bob Wilde, and he sent it on to an editor at North, and she said, I love the cat cartoons and I would like to publish them. Well, I totally, I couldn't even imagine what she was talking about. <laughs> and then I worked it out. Of course, by accident, she had one of my cat cartoons. So anyway, <laughs> they love the cat cartoons, and they're doing a book of them, um, which will be published on Valentine's Day next year. After that, I don't know. That's I think that's, that's going to be the end of my cartooning career. <laughs> and and what, does the, the, that, I don't know. what does the dedication say in that book? I think it says, because what else would it say, mm-hmm. um, uh, to Margaret and to her cats. Oh. How, um, how long were you married and, for? And the Dunkirk book was her idea, so I, that's also dedicated to Margaret. Really? Because, uh, yes, because she said at one point, after my biography of Robert E. Lee was published, she said, you know, you've done Robert E. Lee and you did Lawrence of Arabia and you did Eisenhower. Why not? It takes three or four years to do those books. Why not do something smaller next time? 
and not a big biography. And I said, well, yeah, that sounds actually like a good idea to me, but I have, I just don't have any idea what I would do. And she said, well, why don't you write a book about Dunkirk? And I thought about that for a moment, and I thought, you know, that's a really great idea. <laughs> I, I know a lot about Dunkirk. I can read more about Dunkirk. It's an exciting story. And so I did it. And so I owe this book absolutely to Barbara. How long did it take you to do the book? Two and a half years. That's a lot better than four. Also, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I just love that she was biography. the motivation. There's a tendency if you're writing a big biography that you come in at every mealtime and say, "Darling, you have no idea. Let me read you an absolutely wonderful letter which Robert E. Lee wrote to X." Um, and and eventually, the person you are married to gets bored hearing that and says, "Would you mind not telling me any more about Robert E. Lee's letters?" <laughs> not Barbara, but. but um, but with Dunkirk, it, it, it's a whole variety of different things as opposed to one person. So it's not, you're not, you know, you're not coming in at every mealtime and say, oh, you know, I've just discovered a, another wonderful memo from, from General Eisenhower to General Marshall. You, you, at least there's some varieties of letters and diaries and documents. Um, and so you're not um, obsessively involved with just one person. When when you're writing, do you stick to the to one story like to one book at a time? But or if you have an idea during that about something else, would you ever begin that? And or would you ever you know concurrently no, no, do I think two? That's a fatal mistake. <laughs> it's bad enough to, to chain yourself down to doing this every day on one subject. But if, you know, if you start to get off track, right? Then I think you lose concentration, and the whole thing is likely to turn to jello. Um, <laughs> And um, so I don't know. I mean, this is a temptation, but I, I, I try to avoid it. Do you give yourself sort of, and the, those are for the aspiring authors out there that are listening tonight, do you give yourself sort of a timeline, like I'd like to be here in a month, I'd like to be here in a couple months, or do you sort of let it, it sort of goes on its own, it dictates? I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very willing to promote a book. I, I mean, I'm, I'm doing so just now but um and will for a time but in a way once i've written the book it's behind me mm-hmm. I, I i hope people will read it i hope they will enjoy it um i hope they will learn something from it but i'm not you know it, 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 it it's gone for me it's 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 already in the past well first of all i can tell you everyone's going to read it everyone's going to enjoy it and everyone's going to learn from it so that's done <laughs> Check that off. <laughs> i hope i hope you're right but that would be great 100 um, percent um, so, and I, I'm sorry I've kept you over the time I was supposed to, but I could talk no, to you forever. Um, I have a question too. So, I guess as a mom too with sons, is there having sort of lived through it as well, written it, and sort of re-experienced it when you were going through all the letters and everything? Is there some sort of a message or something that you hope even younger boys might take away from this, or younger children, not boys, and any younger generation would take away from this? Oh, I think so. I mean, I hope so. Um, uh, I, I think what they might take away from it is how important it is to study what politicians do. Uh, that politics is not a harmless recreational interest, that subjects of great importance are being dealt with and decisions being made that have great consequences and sometimes terrible consequences. 
And secondly, that when things turn badly, what is necessary is a clear, strong sense of purpose and courage to deal with it. Um, and and it, it, nations don't necessarily find that overnight or in a hurry, but it's important that when it's necessary, they do. When you were looking through the letters and the um, memoirs and the diaries, did you happen upon any from the soldiers that were at Dunkirk? Oh, yes. And, and were any that really stand out to you now as well? I'm sure every single one did, but is there anything that really stuck out or stuck with you from those as well? Yeah, I think it's the clear, cold courage and sense of purpose that's amazing um, uh, because they were in a desperate situation, and yet um, they they were calmly cold and confident, um, and most of them. And I think that's partly because um, the, the army that was on the beach at Dunkirk was, in effect, the British regular army. Um, mm. They were trained soldiers, um, and and that's why getting them back to Britain was so important. Is because without them, we could never have trained um, a larger army of people who were conscripted and called up. Um, and um, and I think they did very well under intolerable circumstances, and also occasionally had moments of when they had a sense of humor which is, of course, the saving grace in English life. <laughs> right. <laughs> Having a sense of humor. Um, I'm very happy I wrote the book, and I, I, I'm very glad that you enjoyed it. Well, I'm very happy you wrote the book, and I'm sure everyone out there is very happy you wrote the book, and I can't believe we only have one minute left, and I hope you come back with us again. But again, Michael Court, I want you to alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk, defeat into victory. And, Michael, what's the best way for people to get this book or to, what would you suggest is the best way? Any bookstore, if there's still any in business, and I think there are, any bookstore will have it. (laughs) Otherwise, uh, Amazon.com, and it's available on Kindle as well. Um, So it's, 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 it's quite easy to be had. Um, And, and, uh, and I would be very happy if, people read it and enjoy it and learn something from it. And before we go, is there anything I neglected to ask or Kathy and I neglected to ask you tonight that you would like to get out there? No, no, I think, I think we've covered it all. I think it's it, 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 uh, a, a wonderful conversation. Oh. And, and if, you let, if you let Johanna know, I will get you a picture um, um, with, happily. I, I would be happy to sign it and get it to you. It, and again, it was an honor tonight to have you. Everyone out there, you need to immediately go out and get this book, clearly, because there's just so much to it. Alone, Britain, Churchill, and Dunkirk. Defeat into victory. Michael, it was an honor. Kathy, thank you for being oh, my... My great pleasure, and thank you very, very much for having me. Oh, it was and an honor. I, will, I, I hope we will do it again in some, one way or another. I hope so, and Kathy, thank you for being a great co-host and my producer tonight. Preston was amazing, and Michael, you and I will be in touch, and... For those of you out there with just a little teaser, I have a grand, my grandfather was a prisoner of war in World War II at Stalag 17. And I've just told Michael that I, he and I need to talk about this. <laughs> so, um, for everyone out there, thank you all for listening tonight. Go out and get this book immediately. Have your kids read this book on top of it. And everyone, thank you again, and I'll see you next week. Good night. Good night. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night. Do you love poetry, hip-hop, and live music? 
Well then, come on down to The Poet Will Be Televised every second Wednesday of the month at Funkadelic Studios. Perform your own pieces during the open mic or just enjoy the vibes. The Poet Will Be Televised, the best poetry jam in New York. For more information, visit www.thereclife.org. Hi, I'm Danny Ilo. You may know me as an actor, but one of the things that I'm most proud of is my service to this country. In the Army, I saw firsthand how training and discipline instill a value that create great leadership abilities and a can-do spirit. Those same strong values stay with service members when they return to civilian life and enter the workplace. So remember to hire smart and bet on a vet. To learn more, call 888-44-SALUTE or visit saluteheroes.org. If you served honorably in our nation's armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today.